All right, hello and uh, welcome to a uh, little special episode of the Gospel Boldly uh, podcast. I am Pastor Eric Brown, and I am actually by myself today, uh, just coming to you to, to chat a little bit on my own. Uh, Thomas Lumpke will be producing this, so the fine vocal and, and sound quality will be all upon him. But um, just... Uh, we like to do one-offs every once in a while where I can go and talk about a, a different topic, different book of the Bible, or what have you. And uh, today, I decided that I would like to go over what I am uh, tentatively titling Brown's Guide to Reading the Bible. Doesn't that sound all impressive and such? But the the point is I want to deal with just some uh, things to keep in mind when we deal with the interpretation of God's word. How, how, how do we approach this, this book? How do we approach the Bible? Um, the Gospel Boldly podcast is all about running through the, the word of God, looking into it, seeing it, understanding it. Well, what, what are the things that, that we bear in mind when we look at the scriptures. How do we understand how to read it rightly? And also, how do we know to listen and tell whether or not a person is rightly teaching the scriptures? How do I evaluate? How do I look at what someone says about the Bible or or what they teach about it and say, okay, this is on, this is spot on, this is working well, or okay, this is a bunch of hooey, this is a bunch of false doctrine. So um, I, I have seven little happy sayings or ideas I'm going to end up talking about. And uh, these are, are – it's not meant to be a definitive list or a, a full-on this is how you go about interpreting the scriptures simply because that, that, that's a massive class in its own. That would be a, a huge, giant series. But just some uh, rules of thumb to, uh, to keep in your pocket. So the very first one, and I think the, the most important one, is this. Christ, for you, is the center of the scriptures. Uh, when it boils down to it, when people are talking about the scriptures, whenever they come into to dealing with the word of God, it needs to lead, it needs to drive, it needs to flow to Christ for you. It needs to move to the gospel. Um, consider uh, something that should uh, be, be very familiar to those of you who are Gospel Boldly podcast listeners, John 20, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right there, it gets to the point that the reason John's writing the book is so that you would see who Jesus is and know what he has done for you, so that you would believe in him and receive his good gifts. So so if you're if you have someone going and dealing with John and they never get to Jesus for you, you know they're they're off base. They're not getting the fullness of what's going on. That that's John's user guide to his own book. Now you might say, well, that's just John. What about the rest of the stuff? Uh, the end of Luke is also informative. We have Luke 24, 44 through 47. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So do you see what Jesus does there? And this is an important note. He says, while I was still with you, I was pointing out that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's talking about the Old Testament. The way you referred to the Old Testament was the law and the prophets, and even adding in the Psalms, which is everything in the Old Testament. And what does the Old Testament teach? It teaches, thus it is written. When Jesus says this just before the ascension, the only stuff that's written is the Old Testament. Nothing in the New Testament has been written yet. That doesn't get written until decades later. But Jesus can say, thus it is written. Thus this Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament today, is written, and it shows and it teaches that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So even if you're running around in the Old Testament, even if you have someone picking out Leviticus or what have you, the overall context, the overall point should drive to the Messiah is coming who will bring redemption. And so whenever you have someone dealing with the Word of God, whether they are in New Testament, Old Testament, whether it's at the beginning or the end, it should all drive towards Christ and redemption. And if you hear them talk about the Scriptures and don't get to Christ, that's a really bad sign. Or if you're looking at the Scriptures and and aren't seeing any way that this can possibly drive towards Christ, you're, you're missing something. You're not getting the fullness of the picture. So, so basically, when you're looking at stuff, when you're dealing with the scriptures, there should always be a tie towards Christ and forgiveness. That's the, the primary thing. That's the, the heart of how we, we approach the scriptures. Um, one of the things in the Augsburg Confession Article 4 is the article on justification, that we are are forgiven on account of Christ and we receive this forgiveness when we believe. We call that the article upon which the church stands or falls. The idea of Christ and his forgiveness being for us should permeate everything. And so, just in general, the longer you hear someone talk about the scriptures without bringing in Jesus, that's a bad sign. And, And I say Jesus because... Really, one of the things that will happen today, uh, the, the the hip, trendy way to describe pop American Christianity is moralistic therapeutic theism, where where the scriptures get used mainly to be a, a moralistic stick over the head, this is how you behave, uh, a therapeutic approach where this is how you have a better life, this is how you get better, and then deism where you just talk about God in the generic or the abstract. If all you're doing is looking at the scriptures as primarily a book of morals, a a book that tells you how to live your best life now, a a book of earthly wisdom, you don't need a Jesus. You don't need a Savior. And while there is earthly wisdom, while there is stuff that is quite practical, while, while morality is taught in the scriptures, it's not as though that's incidental to Christ. Well, we'll get to that later on. We'll, we'll get to the whole distinction of law and gospel in a bit. But the idea uh, is, as we are sinful people, we need God's law showing us what is right, what is wrong, and also reminding us that we ourselves are sinners who need a Savior. 
if you never get to that whole, you need a savior, or Christ is your savior, or look at what Christ has done for you to win you salvation, to win you life, that's a bad sign. That That's sign number one, warning flag, that, that stuff is going off. Um, I think that works. I'm, I'm going to move on to the second point. The second point that I would have, and this is a big important phrase, scripture interprets scripture. Um, just as a, a note of that, Second um, Peter 2, excuse me, Second Peter 1 verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. One of the important things to remember about Scripture is although there are different human agents involved in the writing of it, although it's written in different languages, although it's written in different time periods, in different places, in different countries, the whole project of Scripture, it's God's Word guided by the Holy Spirit. And so the whole thing hangs together. It ties together. And so one of the the vital things is if you're at a passage that is hard to understand, you don't just simply meditate on it. You don't just simply say, hmm, I wonder, what could this possibly mean? If if something's not clear, if a, a passage seems to be a bit darker or more opaque, you go look elsewhere in the scriptures where that idea is discussed because it all hangs together. The, there is a, a unity in the scriptures that we should recognize because it's all the word of God. It's the word that comes from God. And so what happens is see the scriptures, even within their own various books, as a, a, a whole. It's all God's word. And even if you have uh, books that come at things from different angles, they still are meant to hang together. Uh, the various books work in concert together, not in opposition together. And this is something that is very important that a lot of modern scholarship can, if not miss, underemphasize. Uh, one of the hip things that comes up in in a lot of modern theological talk in, in academia is where there will be a lot of emphasis on schools. Like, oh, here you have the Johannine school, here you have the Pauline school, here you have the Petrine school. So, so they'll focus very much on this is how James does it, this is how John does it, this is how Luke does it. And, and almost as though they are rival schools fighting and biting at each other and, and almost like it's, well, Indiana versus Purdue or Oklahoma versus Texas or, or terrible rivalry. Don't let people overly pit scriptures against the scriptures. Rather, there's a, a, a beauty of working together. One of the things that I, I like to think about, I've described it this way. Um, all the scripture is God's word. It's all pointing to this wonderful truth of our salvation from sin by Christ Jesus with his death and resurrection, which we receive by faith. That's what everything is driving at. If I hired five different painters, I said, I want you to paint a picture of my church. I might get five radically different paintings depending on what their own style and preference was. If I had someone who was photorealistic, I'd get one type of photo. If I had someone who loved playing with light and shadow, I might get something different. I got someone who loved using blue tones. I might get an impressionistic painting. 
they, they'd all recognizably be the same church, but they might emphasize different aspects of what the church looks like, what the building looks like. Um, that often comes up in the various books of the Bible. It's not that they are set in opposition to each other. If, if a guy does an impressionistic painting of the church and uses a lot of blue tones, he's not doing that over and against the guy who makes a photorealistic painting. It's just he's emphasizing different things. One might be emphasizing small detail. One might be emphasizing larger issues. It's okay. So if you hear, oh, well, James and, and Paul don't get along, well, no, no, no. If you're pitting the two against each other, you are missing the point because they do work together in concert. So, so in general, remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. And if someone is using Scripture to pit against Scripture, that's a bad sign. That, that, that's a, a, a sign that something is off, that there, there is the, the holistic whole that is being missed. Again, and generally that holistic hole that would be missed would be Christ because he, everything drives to Christ. And if you put something against something else, you're probably really no longer talking about Christ. But that's neither here nor there. Um, that's the second point. Scripture interprets Scripture. Keep looking. It, it's, the Scripture really is a giant tapestry. It all interweaves. It all connects. It, it, it really does flow together. It, it makes perfect sense that on Sunday mornings we generally have three readings, one from the Old, one from the Epistle, one from the Gospel, and they will flow and connect together. Uh, the third bit of uh, advice that I have would be follow the rule of faith. Now, this was a, a big term in the early church, the rule of faith. And the idea here is that the church very, very early on understood that there are nice little shorthand ways to keep us in check with how we read the scriptures. And if something goes against these shorthands, it's off. And I'm, this even happens in the scriptures itself. Consider a, a famous verse that you should know, 1 Timothy 1.15. St. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, we, we, we get that part, chief of sinners, though I be, we sing the song. But note the preface to it. The saying is trustworthy and worthy of full, and deserving of full acceptance. The point there is that Paul is not just making a comment about, well, yeah, I, Paul, happen to be the really bad sinner. I mean, look at all the stuff I did. But rather, it becomes an axiomatic statement that is a description of the faith. To be a Christian, to be part of the Christian faith, is to view things in this way, that I, me, myself, am the greatest of sinners, but Christ came to the world to save sinners. And then the verse continues on. In showing mercy to me, it, it serves an example to how God can forgive anyone. And this becomes a, a very useful thing just for Christian living and such, because the simple fact is I know my sin much more than I know anyone else's sin. And yet I see how God has forgiven me. Therefore, I should be able to assume that God can forgive the, the pittance that another has done against me or, or Scripture interprets Scripture. Why, why, why do you tell your brother, uh, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you've got the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye. It's that same idea. And so what happens is 
that right there is an example of a rule of faith. Keep this idea in mind, and if somehow you come across the Scripture and it makes you want to say, well, I'm not really that big of a sinner, you're off base. If you come across something and you want to interpret it meaning that, well, Jesus didn't really come to save sinners, you're off base. That saying is a a guide. It's a rule. It, It keeps you in check and keeps the way you read the scriptures in check. Um, So what are the rules of faith that we generally would deal with? The the two big rules of faith, and and these are very, very useful in, in your own reading and understanding and your own listening, are the creeds and the small catechism. I know technically the, the creeds are part of the small catechism. I'm going to start there with the creeds. In the worship service, the creed is either located before or after the sermon. Um, depends on which service you use out of, the, out of the hymnal. But that was done intentionally because the creed is supposed to be a check upon the preaching. Uh, when we confess the creed, and I walked into the pulpit, I had better not preach anything that contradicts that creed, because if I have done so, then I know I'm wrong. And more importantly, the hearers can know that I'm wrong. Or if we confess the creed immediately after that, that had better work as a a check, as a, a, all right, did everything we just hear in that sermon check and flow and mesh with the creed? So, in the service, that, that's really the function of the creed. It's not just our own common confession, but it's also right by the one part of the service where someone makes up something new. Think, think about this for the, the service with the liturgy. There's a, a reason why historically the church has used a liturgy, has used propers, things that we keep saying, uh, used ordinary, sorry, that, that's the stuff that we refer to, the things that happen every day. Every Sunday, every service, they're the ordinaries, the curie, the uh, the glorious the the sanctus. They're ordinary because we know they're good. We know they're solid. Or you have the propers, the things that change from week to week. But we don't just make stuff up each new each week. It's okay. It's going to be the sixth Sunday after Trinity. These are the propers. This will be the intro. These will be the readings. They're standardized. Really, the only fluctuation and variation that you get in the service would be the hymns, which is why traditionally we've said your hymn should come from a synodically approved hymnal because that's stuff that we vetted, or the sermon. And really, if anything is going to go sideways in a, a liturgical service that, that's just going to be totally off the wall and wonky, it'll be the sermon. That's why we have the creed right by the sermon to keep that all in check. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why... Uh, why it's good to uh, have the the full liturgy. I was listening to a pastor who said, uh, it's important and good to have the supper every Sunday. Why? I can preach a bad sermon, but I can never have a bad supper. So it's good to have these solid standard things. The other thing I would have you remember when reading the scriptures or listening and evaluating someone who's talking about them is to think on the small catechism. There's a reason why in confirmation class we go over the small catechism, the Ten Commandments and their meanings, the creed and their meanings, the Lord's Prayer and its meaning, baptism, what does this mean? Confession, what does this mean? The Lord's Supper, what does this mean? And the reason is that becomes the simple, basic 
framework that you can understand and approach any theological discussion that comes your way. If you hear someone come and start talking and they deal with with God not being your creator, if they deal with the commandments as not instructing us to fear and love God, if they they excuse something that is pointed out to be bad in in the commandments, if they let us off the hook easily in the the law and don't demand that we 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 actually uh, serve our neighbor, you know it's off. If you hear them undercut Christ's presence in the supper, you know it's off. If you hear them undercut the salvation given in baptism, you know it's off. So the small catechism is your main internalized, memorized tool to let you know if something is off. The the reason pastors try to make you memorize the catechism is not just that we're old-fashioned and want you to go through a rite of passage that we had to, went, had to go through ourselves, but that if you have the small catechism at hand in your mind, you have a fantastic tool to evaluate any piece of doctrine that comes your way, any bit of interpretation. Does this jive with the small catechism? Does this mesh? And if it doesn't, that can set off warning flags right away. So so just one of the things is we deal with the rule of faith. If you come across something that agrees with the creeds and the small catechism, then there's a good chance it's actually going to be a good interpretation. So... Um, Follow the rule of faith. Uh, if you want to know more on the rule of faith, Ignatius of Antioch, not Ignatius, Irenaeus of Lyon was very big on the rule of faith. In fact, he uh, did one of the early books against the heretics and basically said the heretics have no right to interpret scripture because they're not going to get the point because they're, they're heretics. They, they don't follow what the faith is, and so they're not going to get it. Basically, if you don't keep Christ as the center of the scriptures, Christ for you, you can use the scriptures all sorts of ways to come up with all sorts of crazy stuff, but you're then abusing the scriptures. And that doesn't mean the scriptures are bad. It's just like any tool. If you don't use it for what it's intended, it's, you, you can do bad things with it. I, I can use a, a screwdriver to go stab my computer and break it, but that's not what it was intended for. So, um, the next point, the other thing that I, the next thing that I would have you look out for and, and consider when reading, when listening, is point four. Let law and gospel really be law and gospel. When I, when we speak of the Lutherans, love to uh, approach things through the categories of law and gospel, where we mean the law is that which speaks to what we are to do as Christians, what we should do and what we end up failing to do because we're sinners. And then the gospel, this is what Christ has done for you in winning salvation. And one thing I would say is listen to how they use and treat the law and listen to how they treat the gospel. Uh, the classic book on this is uh, by C.F.W. Walther uh, called Law and Gospel, and it's for uh, it's lectures that he gave to pastors, uh, seminarians, on, on an evening dealing with, with how you can mess up with law and gospel. And one of the things he pointed out is the law needs to be preached in its full sternness, the gospel in its full sweetness, with the gospel predominating. Consider this passage from Romans 3, uh, Romans three twenty three, starting and following. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Don't let someone shortchange you on the law and say, well, well, okay, you didn't really fall that far short. Well, no, you're short of the glory of God. The, 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 the law says be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, not be pretty good or be better than this other guy or, or be improving. God isn't improving. It's be perfect. And if you are not perfect, then the law shows you your sin. Uh, one of the things is people will want to soft sell the law. They'll want to make it into, they'll want to break it down into easily accomplishable chunks. They'll want to turn it almost into like the, the, the seven step program. In fact, the, the Methodist church, that was initially part of their idea. They had an idea that there was a method that you could follow to, a, to approach and maybe even achieve total and complete perfect sanctification where you'd live without sin in this life. That's part and parcel of the background of American thought and theology. And so there can be this idea to try and water down the law to make it a, a kindler, gentler law, where, where it's law that this is what you can do. And well, no, the, the law shows us the perfect will of God that I, as a sinful human being, do not live up to. Think about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods. Uh, what does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Seriously, above all things. And so in any way, shape, or form where we fall short, that's the law showing us our sinfulness. And that's what the law does. So if someone tries to make the law merely happy advice, merely good moral advice, and if you just do this, your life will be better, they're really undercutting the theological thrust of the law. The law shows us our sin. Does it do other stuff? Yes, it does give good advice. And you know what? It... Just, just as a general rule of thumb, don't kill people. If you, if you live your life and say, you know what, today I'm hoping not to kill someone, that's generally a good way to go about your life. But don't think that gets you any brownie points with God because, again, there's that whole fullness that we get in the catechism about it. Not only is it to, to not kill, but not to hurt, not to be angry with, not to yell at, and not only not to not do stuff, but also to help him in his body and life. So, so don't let people shortchange the law. And the real reason why it's important to not shortchange the law is if someone shortchanges the law, they're going to shortchange Christ. If you act as though you're only a little bit of a sinner, not that big of a sinner, you're not going to act as though you need a, a real big savior. If I look at myself and say, well, you know, I, 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 I'm I, a pretty good Christian. I, in terms of morality, I, I'm going to give myself a 95. I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good, and I'm certainly better than all those other folks out there. I'm looking at myself as saying, oh, well, I only I only need a Jesus who will give me like a 5% bump, and I, I, I'm up to all good. You were dead in your trespasses. That's how Paul puts it. That, that's not a 95%. That, that zip, zilch, that's nothing. The law shows us the depths of our sin. And from there, we end up seeing and understand the greatness, the, the, the heights, the wonders of God's love for us in Christ. So what happens is if you soft sell the law, it becomes a bait and switch where you elevate yourself 
and rob Christ of his glory. So, so when you hear people, when you hear them preach, when you look at the scriptures, read them in such a way so that you see your sin, that, that the scriptures show to you your own vileness, not how great you are. And then continue to remember from there the greatness of God's love for you, of Christ's love for you, of his salvation. Let the law be strong. Let the gospel be stronger still. Otherwise, you just watered down and turned it into mush and pap. So. so those are the first four. I want to I recap right now. Christ for you is the center of scriptures. The scriptures interpret scripture. Follow the rule of faith and let law and gospel really be law and gospel. Uh, to close off, I'm going to have three kind of points that all flow under one idea. And this is the idea of the historical grammatical method. If you want, you can probably impress your pastor by saying, I know that we as Lutherans, or conservative Lutherans at least, follow the historical grammatical method. Um, in the big whole stuff that went on in the 50s and 60s and all the debates over Scripture and what is the Scripture, the, the method that the Missouri Senate ended up following was often called the historical grammatical method. That when we went to understand the scriptures, we had to look at the history and you look at the grammar. You pay attention to the words. You pay attention to their context for which they were written. And, and understanding the history and understanding the actual words, that's what lets you understand what goes on. We, we look at scriptures and we try to understand what it says and we place ourselves underneath it. Uh, that was opposed to what was called the historical critical method where, where you approach scriptures as a critic trying to evaluate and pick out, oh, I don't think the, I don't like this part. I don't think Jesus would have actually said this and you kick it out. No, we place ourselves under scripture. We, we let the word speak to us. We let the history inform our own approach. Uh, this is why occasionally hear me uh, bring in little nuances about the history and what what did this word actually what was meant by that what did they hear and understand back then and how would we apply that today? So uh, a few points that flow out of the historical grammatical method. Well, the first one would be you got to pay attention to grammar. And my fifth point, my my fifth little adage is a great one: follow the verbs. The best way to pay attention to grammar, and this is one of the things that often gets mistaken or messed up, is follow the verbs of the sentence. Pay attention to who is doing the verb. If God is the one who's doing the action, if God is the subject of the sentence, let God be the subject. That's something that God does and we receive. In fact, much of the, the scriptures, much of the gospel is the gospel is receptive. Jesus dies, we receive. What will happen is a lot of people will try to turn that into you being active, where you end up doing the stuff, where you become the hero of the story. No, pay attention to the verb. See who's doing stuff. Um, well, that was just a beautiful little pause where I was trying to think of a, a great example off the top of my head. But just just listen, and if God is the one who's active in the passage, God had better be the one who's active in how you explain or expound upon the passage. 
if we're if it's about what we're doing, it's law. If it's about what God's doing, it's gospel. If you flip the verbs, if you don't pay attention to the way the grammar works, you're going to mess up law and gospel. You're going to get them all cattywampus, and that leads to all sorts of historical trouble. Uh, next point. Uh, Follow the context. That's point six. Follow the verbs is five, six. Follow the context. Context is important. Um, it determines how you understand what's going on. If you, if you don't have that context, you can't get it. Uh, let me give a, 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 an example. Uh, John 13, 26 and 27. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Well, what's the context of this? Jesus has been talking about who's going to betray him. This is on the, in, in the upper room on Monday, Thursday night, and Judas goes off. Well, if you... This is talking about Jesus and Judas. Jesus is not looking at you and saying, all right, if you're going to sin, go sin and do what you want to do and do it quickly. No, no, no. That, that's eliminating the context. Je- the, this, is, this is not an instruction Jesus is giving to you to go and sin, but rather, <laughs> all right, Judas, go betray, go do your betrayal. You have to pay attention to whom is speak who is speaking to whom and and does that then apply to you when reading the scriptures remember who's being addressed there are times when david when god gives instructions to david because david is a king well i'm not a king therefore that instruction does not directly apply to me and moreover i'm not the king of ancient israel you have to remember who you are and how things apply to you this this ties into the whole idea of vocation a uh, very underlooked part of the, the catechism is the table of duties. Or uh, in the section on confession, when we confess our sins, consider your station in life. Consider where God has put you. That determines what you should be doing. Likewise, there are times in the scriptures when God is not talking directly to you. Uh, let me give an example. Um, in Ephesians 5 and 6, at the end of of Five and six. You have the instructions on marriage. You have the uh, instructions for parents. You have you have children. Honor your father and your mother. That may be well with you. All that such. And then you have the corollary where Paul says to the the fathers: Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Um. You know, part of this is is learning to know when God is speaking to you. I am a father, therefore. Therefore, in my role as a father, the thing that's really speaking to me is don't exasperate your son. That's what I need to know. When I'm dealing with my son, my focus needs to be, okay, let me not provoke him to wrath. As a father, I'm to graze and instruct him in a way that I don't just provoke him to wrath. So if he's upset with me, my my goal is not to turn the other part that's given to him and beat him over the head with it. I will instruct him, honor your father. But that's not a stick to beat him over the head with when, whenever I don't like what he's doing. Rather, if I don't like what he's doing, I need to remember, okay, let me not provoke him to wrath. Let me teach him gently and not use the scripture as a bully club against him. Not, let me not weaponize it. Uh, this really comes up for husbands and wives. I've heard uh, one pastor say, uh, all right, 
Yes, wives, submit to your husband. Follow your husband's lead. Husbands, die for your wife. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. You are to die for her. That's great to talk about and even discuss with each other when things are well. But if things are going poorly and, and I'm not liking how things are going, I'm not to be using that as a weapon against my wife. I'm not to walk up and say, "Wife, well, you submit to me. No, no. She's supposed to submit to me. It's not I make her submit to me. That, that should come freely from her. It's not a weapon for me to beat her over the head with. Or conversely, if I do something my wife doesn't like, she's not supposed to come and say, you're supposed to love me as Christ loved the church, and that means you die for me. Well, no, no, that, that's weaponizing. That's not the time. And that, that's the time where actually you submit. What happens is we can look outside of our vocation Ignore the context of our own lives and then weaponize the scripture against our neighbor rather than remembering what's, what's upon me. My duty is to love my wife, not, not manipulate her into doing precisely what I want. That, that's not how Christ goes about it. Likewise, as a parent, my job is to raise my child in gentleness, not beat him over the head. In terms of relating to my dad, when I'm a child, my job is to to strive to obey him and show him honor and respect, not to say, oh, dad, you're provoking me to wrath. You better not do this. It's going to make me wrathful. No, no, that you don't use the word of God against someone in their vocation. That's taking it all out of your own immediate context. So so when I say follow the context, there is that whole larger context of, of what's actually going on in the scriptures. Uh, when you see someone just quote a verse, generally look at the verses before it and after it. Well, and actually, you know what? That's going to go into the next point. We'll move that into point three. This is highly, highly organized now. Uh, the last point I have, point seven, the historical part of the historical grammatical approach is important. There's a history to the Bible. There is a story. If you take the HI out of history, you get story. And really, the scripture is a story. It's a narrative. It's the story of, of God's salvation of man, how God creates man, man falls, and God comes to save and redeem and eventually restores mankind in the new creation. That's the flow of it. Keep with the flow. Let the story play out. When you're dealing with the scriptures, there, there's a good flow to it, things set up for things later on. And so if you just get so focused on one particular spot, you, you, you miss the forest for the trees. You, you, you need to see the larger picture. And again, that larger picture is Christ for sinners, Christ for you. And so make sure that you're seen, make sure that you hear, make sure that you get the, the whole flow of the story when you deal with the scriptures. This is really a matter of context. This is a matter of, of looking at how we are in our lives. Where do we fit in to the continual flow of the story? In our various vocations, we fit into different people's lives in different ways. To some people, I'm a friend. To some people, I'm a husband. Well, to one person, not some people. Don't get me in trouble with my wife. To one person, I'm a husband. To a couple of people, I'm a dad. To many people, I'm a pastor. To some, I'm a former pastor. To some, I'm a classmate. To some, I'm a student. And wrapped up in all of that is that constant flow of sinner who is forgiven by Christ. 
sinner who is given various vocations by Christ to show forth Christ's own love within. So it's figure out how you end up fitting the story, how the passage fits in the story, and and whether or not it applies to you. All right, that last part, I don't know if it made tons of sense. It's been a long day. If I'm getting confused, and I shouldn't say confused, that sounds bad. If I'm slightly losing my focus, you guys probably are tired of listening to me too. I mean, it's been almost 40 minutes without a break. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, feel free to, to leave them on our Facebook page, all that. We'll try to get to them, and I hope you enjoyed this and thought it was a good thing. So take care, be well, God bless, and remember... It's all about Christ for you. Have a good one, folks.